That Moment in Time Nick and I, along with our adult son Ned, are only about 45 minutes into our seven-hour drive north when traffic comes to a complete standstill just south of Milwaukee. The highway is in the middle of construction and we are totally boxed in with concrete dividers and rumbling semis. There is no way to peek around and see what is going on. The midday traffic has been light, so the abrupt haul is foreboding, promptly confirmed by the distant but oncoming sound of sirens. We sit idling for about five minutes, but when the truck driver next to us turns off his rig, we roll down the window to hear the news. There's a big accident up ahead of us, he says. A southbound semi crashed into the divider and flipped over into the northbound traffic. Their bodies, both sides of the highway, are completely blocked off. The grim news travels quickly through the trapped traffic, and one by one engines turn off and people emerge from their cars into the bright sunlight. I give Ned my binoculars and ask him to see if he can snake his way forward to get an idea of the extent of the accident. I get out to look around and check out our new randomly selected social group. The truck driver breaks all my stereotypes as he steps out of his van. He looks like a suburban soccer dad, tidy and trim, wearing khaki shorts, a polo shirt, and Birkenstocks. Immediately ahead of us, a youngish-looking man and woman step out of their car. They just don't look like a romantic couple. Both are wearing business casual clothes, and I assume they are colleagues returning from an off-site business meeting. But the man sits on the trunk of his car, takes his shoes off, and starts clipping his toenails. I nudge Nick. Look at them. They can't be co-workers. They must be married, said Nick. The man reaches into the glove compartment, extracts a toothbrush, and begins to brush his teeth. Married for at least ten years, I say. I strike up a conversation with the man in the sedan, crammed with light fixtures. He's a traveling salesman who's driven across several states only to be trapped in this jam. He points out his house to me just ahead on the exit ramp, now totally blocked off. I think back to my days of commuting on the L in Chicago, from my apartment on the north side of the city, through the business center, and then out to the sketchier west side to school, when the L would mysteriously stop between stations in a dank tunnel. I would fall into an irrational fear that I might be stuck in the L train for the rest of my life. And if so, who would become my friends amongst this random collection of riders? The easy choice would be the other student sitting with a textbook on his lap. Or given the limited options, would I move out of my comfort zone and strike up a conversation with a guy wearing a do-rag and hoisting a boombox? Or perhaps the pleasant-looking older woman with huge bunions and cracked calluses? or maybe the pretty younger woman whose tongue was currently in the ear of her boyfriend. Thankfully, the train would inevitably lurch forward before I had to confront this reality. But today, I'm with my family in the spring sun. It's a beautiful day, and people begin to mill about. It actually seems like a perfect setting for a block party. I'm sure that we aren't the only ones with a loaded cooler in our car, and I imagine that we could create an impromptu community by creating a picnic spread on our car hood. Certainly there must be a musician somewhere in our midst to provide entertainment. Our son Ned returns from his walk up the highway and interrupts my reverie with a sobering jolt of reality. The crash is really close, just ahead under the bridge. It's a mess. I saw an EMT with an axe breaking a window to get a guy out. There's a tipped-over semi that is straddling both sides of the highway. There are spilled hamburger buns all over the place.
My idling thoughts shift from random collections of people to this random series of events that has landed us one ripple away from ground zero. At home, I had thought that we were all set to go, but then at the last minute, Ned hadn't finished packing. When we headed out, Ned took an unusual route to get on the tollway, which probably set us back another minute or so. These are the most proximate factors that snuggle us safely some 100 yards away from potential death. But I can probably come up with an infinite number. Before leaving, Nick took the dogs for a walk. If they had promptly pooped instead of requiring a couple laps around the driveway, we could have been those bloodied bodies lying on top of hamburger buns. I grab my binoculars and start walking towards the crash. The binoculars give me an air of authority. Many people ask what's going on. When I repeat Ned's story, universally people say something along the lines of, I don't mind sitting in this traffic. That could have been us up there in that crash. Everyone in this jam has their own unique circumstances that have landed us in the exact order that we now find ourselves. I think about the chaos theory symbolized by the butterfly effect, that the small quirks in each of our routines are ultimately responsible for widely diverging and unpredictable outcomes. Death for those just ahead of us, near death for my current peer group, and a mere traffic annoyance for those farther back. Suddenly I recall a book report that I had written in middle school about Thornton Wilder's The Bridge of San Luis Rey, the story of an ancient Incan bridge spanning a chasm. The bridge suddenly snapped and hurtled five innocent people to a violent death. The tragedy is witnessed by a monk who then seeks to understand why God made these choices and how he engineered the set of circumstances to put these specific people on the bridge at that very moment. He never finds an explanation, is accused of being a heretic, and both he and his book are ultimately burned in the town square. The book remained on the reading list for several grades, so I kept revising the same book report over the next several years. As each year passed, my repurposed report probed more deeply with discussions of the unhappy intersection of religion and the random nature of tragedy. I may feel like I have a reasonable grasp on my life, chores, to-do lists, moving from point A to point B. But these are just signposts, and if I look more closely, I will see that the distance between them is filled with infinite random events. Will I find a parking spot, or who will I run into at the grocery store? Most days, these details are nothing more than mindless filler, but on some days, this filler coalesces into a distinct event. The perfect parking spot, timely networking at the meat counter, or even better, a life-changing event. Nick and I first met at a party that neither of us was invited to. In a huge, seething mass of people, we just happened to stand next to each other. I ascribe these happy coalescences to luck, but recognize that randomness can also coalesce in a fatal way. On this beautiful spring day, an overturned semi is the Incan Bridge. Instead of random bodies plunging into a chasm, they are splayed out on the hot pavement midst far-flung hamburger buns, luck and fate separated by nothing more than the gentle flap of a butterfly's wing. A bright line separates the time before and after the crash. For those just ahead of us, this grim day may be the paired endnote to a birth date. Or perhaps years from now, a family will try to pinpoint an event and ask, was that before or after the accident? For us, 100 yards back, this moment will only be an evanescent fleck on our timeline. I feel awkward about being a gawker over roadkill, so I head back to our car. 
The traffic further behind us is now being rerouted along a side road. These people are in the third ripple from ground zero, not close enough to the accident to think about near-death experiences, but close enough to react to our predicament. Boy, we are so lucky. If we had left five minutes earlier, we would have been in that standstill. At least we can get off the highway. I turned to Nick. Hey, I was just thinking. All of us are guaranteed one real death experience. That's a given. But don't you think that in everyone's lifetime there will be at least one near-death experience? Do you think this is ours? Nick and Ned are deep into their smartphones and don't answer. I am left to my own ruminations. Hmm, let's see. There was that city bus that almost ran me over, and that cliff that almost did me in when I was on a mountain hike. I realize I'm way over quota with a total of three near-death experiences. However, the first two were totally my fault, a product of impatience and carelessness. I decided to make a separate category for the random acts of a sloppy god. So now maybe I'm booked for the rest of my life. I've got my near-deaths out of the way. At the very least, it's a relaxing premise to live by. We are approaching the two-hour mark and boredom is setting in. I don't have the energy to organize a block party, and tallying near-death experiences has run its course. I lean back on the hood of my car and feel the radiant heat directly on my flat shoulder blades as it seeps down the small of my back. I close my eyes and listen to the sounds around me. Above me, the distinctive thwapping noise of the news helicopter reminds me of the Vietnam War. With nothing better to do, my mind meanders to the distinctive noises of our most prominent wars. For World War II, I hear the menacing sound of German shepherds barking as they strain at their leashes, the sound of armies marching on cobblestone streets, and the dissonant two-tones of the French sirens. I think they're called klaxons. I'm stumped by the signature sound of the Korean War, and am ashamed that I can only think of the M.A.S.H. theme song. The novelty of the standstill has worn off. I'm not alone. Nick and Ned have tired of their smartphones, and their conversation about the Chicago Bulls' playoff possibilities has petered out. The truck driver has gotten back into his cab and rests his head against the wheel. My toe-clipping neighbor and his presumed wife sit motionless in the car. No one is milling around. I close my eyes and wonder if anxiety is now souring the initial relief at our good fortune. Missed airplanes, dogs needing a walk, babysitter logistics. The next waves of communication are likely focused on frantic workarounds. Without time constraints, I know we'll get to our point B. The only question is when. Suddenly Nick says, Hey, I think they're making progress. They must have the bodies off the road because they have some sort of tractor removing the concrete barriers. I hear ignitions firing up and the rumble of the semi next to me. Traffic starts to inch forward. We are rerouted southward, and then the cars fan out to fill up side roads as we make a big detour back north. Altogether, not a bad two hours, considering the proximity of death. We are on our way again, gratefully accelerating into another blind flurry of butterflies. <laughs>